Yes, hello, it's Jason Louv. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. Hello, thank you for meeting me once again in this digital temple that we have. So, today's episode is a special one. I am actually putting up a small excerpt from the Adept Initiative. Why am I doing this? P.S. Adept Initiative is probably our most popular course. That's the one of everything on the site that people have raved about the most. Why am I doing this? Number one, I just got a new Mac Studio. Um, I'm very excited about this, although, of course, with every new purchase, feeling slight uh, uh, buyer's remorse for paying so much, but it's for a good cause because we are going to use it to remaster and revitalize all the content on the site. You will see that rolling out, and I'm really, really excited about that. It's long in coming, and of course, we're producing tons more content. One of the things we are going to remaster for people who already have access to it or who are soon to become students is the ADAPT initiative because there's almost 40 hours of material on that and it's well overdue for a polish, better video quality, better audio quality, editing, getting it all streamlined from its original state as a live performance because it has turned out that that course is just consistently in demand. So while we were working on that, we pulled out an excerpt to share with you, which is about a really important and eternal, unfortunately, subject, which is trauma and dealing with trauma, whether it's childhood trauma or otherwise, in the context of achieving your true will. If there's one thing that holds us back from becoming all that we are meant to be in this life, trauma's way up there on the list, and the fear that results from trauma holding us back from taking chances that we really should. So this seemed like something good to share. Um, we may be pulling out a few excerpts from other courses here and there as we remaster them, just so you can get a little taste of them. So for those who don't know, Adept Initiative is the cornerstone class on magic.me. It is designed to take you from from knowing nothing potentially or knowing lots to basically mastering all the fundamental skills of magic within the course of about six weeks. This includes yoga, it includes ceremonial magic, it includes chaos magic techniques, it includes um, techniques from both the Thelemic traditions and Franz Barden. There's a lot of Franz Barden stuff in there actually, along with a ton of information on how to deal with the material world, how to get your finances in order, how to get your life in order, how to build the base of your pyramid, which is something that we all need help with right now, including me, because we've kind of, our pyramids have been uh, shaken up, uh, shall we say, over the last couple of years. So I wanted to read a couple testimonials that students have written in because as part of repreparing it, I was looking at the exit survey on the course, and there's like 150 testimonials that students gave, and I was really, really touched by them. I hadn't seen them until now. So for everyone who has written in these testimonials, thank you so much. I wish I could read all of them. There's 150 of them. I just wanted to share a few and uh, that, that I, I really stuck out to me of people who have really been touched by this course. So here goes. I benefited greatly from this class. I made more progress deepening my yoga practice in six weeks than I had in my whole previous year of practice. I have a greater understanding of the purpose of Western magic and a clearer path forward. I would recommend this course to anyone who is interested in moving their lives forward and finding peace of mind and meaning in their lives. 
Jason is unlike any other teacher I've had in that he speaks from a very honest, truthful, yet kind manner. He will not waste your time and he will not let you down. Thank you. Next one. Next one. Derek D., acupuncturist, says, Without a doubt, the ADAPT initiative was one of the greatest gifts I have ever given myself. Jason's thorough and multifaceted approach, his commitment to guiding students to find their true path and discover and claim the highest possible meaning for their lives are without parallel in today's burgeoning spiritual marketplace. The ADAPT initiative is almost criminally underpriced considering how much value is crammed into it. Thank you, Derek. Joseph, personal trainer, says, utterly transformative. What a brilliant and systematic approach to magic. Jason Louvre creates a clear path to promote change in your life. Using ancient traditions from several lineages and authors, he has laid a true foundation. Upon completion of the course, I felt an unparalleled sense of accomplishment. I feel deeply rooted in my will and ready to enjoy life again. This course is the best value for dollar purchase I've ever made. Buying the Adept Initiative was like paying for a cheap plane ticket only to find yourself on a first-class rocket ship ride that changes you as a person. The content is easily understood and a joy to watch. It is magic grounded in history, made practical. The course as a whole is the closest thing I've had to a reality-warping experience without drugs. If you have an interest in any of the material in the Adept Initiative, it will deliver beyond your expectations and more. Cannot recommend it enough. Thank you so much for that. Grant, respiratory therapist, says, The Adept Initiative was like having a spiritual teacher hold you accountable and guide you to supercharging your spiritual and material advancement. I felt I really received the initial investment back several times over with the content covered in this course. Anyone novice to advanced that would like to dial in the key areas of their lives without the bullshit, this is the course to go to. Thank you so much. Daniel from Cincinnati says, I am a professional musician and business owner and can say without a doubt that the Adept Initiative has truly changed my life. Taking this class has been one of the best decisions I have made for my life in recent memory. I especially appreciate the straightforward, no bullshit delivery Jason gives with each and every unit. I have been floundering in a cult practice for a few years now, hungry for spiritual growth, yet missing the target continually. Well, now through this class, I have found and established a practice that offers me equilibrium and buoyancy in this crazy mess of existence. The class was uplifting, but also challenging, serious, and yet loving all at the same time. If anyone is looking for a path for magic and spiritual growth, look no further. Jason Lube's work is nothing short of a precious and valuable gem in these troubling and confusing times. I cannot thank you enough. I look forward to the coming classes made available through magic.me. Thank you, Daniel. Bradley from Vancouver says, When taking classes with Jason, it's obvious that you found the real thing. Having personally explored an array of people giving advice on spiritual matters, it's been obvious to me that Mr. Louvre is head and shoulders above the rest, teaching in a concise, safe way. His 20-plus years of study, practice, and living on the magical path are invaluable to the evolution of the human race. Thank you for introducing me to a side of myself I never thought was possible. Growth comes best through the spiritual self, and this is what I continue to prove to myself through the practices you teach. I'm dedicated to doing the work, but I'm so grateful for the welcome, the guidance, and meaningful impact you've made on how I see and how I live my life. You're doing God's work, Mr. Louvre. Thank you very much for that review. Okay, two, two, two last ones. I'm probably reading too many, but I had to choose from 150, forgive me. 
There's so much wheat and chaff for any aspirant who is interested in occult studies. Jason Louv and his Magic.me organization are the best bang for time and money to help any aspirant separate the wheat from the chaff, the shit from the Shinola in their efforts to discern and realize their true will and make the most of their life. Thanks, Jason. And lastly, Stephen, communication security manager for an aerospace company, says the ADAPT initiative is the most comprehensive foundational practice available today, and I have looked. Whether you're familiar with magic or not, I hope you take advantage of the time and research Jason has put into these subjects. The work is rigorous, the truth unflinching, and results are tangible. If you've gotten to the section where you're reading testimonials to see if this course is something you should do, then just sign up for it. If that sentence didn't do it for you, then ask yourself, what is the worst thing that can happen? Exactly. Take your life in your hands and do this for yourself because you deserve it. The techniques and exercises offered in the ADAPT initiative are utterly consciousness-altering. Putting the techniques to use is like discovering a treasure map of your own soul. Study the map. Take the course. Life is a treasure. Thank you so much to everyone who wrote in those reviews and who have written reviews that I didn't read either for ADAPT uh, or um, any of the other courses. It's It really means a lot. And um, it's very touching because, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I just sit in front of a computer all day and, and I, I interact with people only uh, online more or less. So it really means a lot. And thank you very much. Anyways, um, ADAPT Initiative is there for you. It's at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. And jump into it. You don't need any prior experience. You don't need to have taken any courses. It uh, has been shown by, not by me, but by the students to be the most popular course on the site. Check it out. Okay, here is an excerpt and I will see you in class. We're going to get back deeper into your true will very shortly because I don't want you to drift off too far. It's very easy to get caught up in the techniques of magic and yoga. Am I doing it right? All this, that stuff is really important, but I'm going to keep bringing you back to the point of all of this, which is your true will. And so we're going to talk about that. But first, let me address a few things. Some interesting things have been coming up in questions. Something else is coming up in the Facebook group. I actually addressed it a little bit. And um, somebody uh, wrote a long post about um, childhood abuse. And uh, not not directly, but in terms of how it was manifesting in his, fam in his family dynamics, you know, 20, 30 years down the road. Real common, right? Uh, very common, way more common than anyone wants to admit, endemic to society, right, at all levels. So it's really hard to say, you know, I, I don't know anything about numbers or anything like that, but it seems to me, at least anecdotally, that um, a childhood abuse, uh, sexual abuse, uh, and abuse of various forms, and trauma, particularly trauma, childhood trauma, are... Uh, extremely endemic. I mean, basically saturate the new age world or the alternative spiritual world or the magical world. Um, now, I would say it seems that, you know, the obvious response is, well, people are trying to fix themselves. I'm not sure that's the answer. You know, it'd be really easy to say like, oh, I developed various theories about this over the, the ages. <laughs> um, 
particularly because childhood, early childhood abuse tends to pr produce disassociation, which leads to things like experiencing the astral plane and seeing reality from weird angles and things like that. So that, that's pretty straightforward. But um, and this whole sense of reality shifting and the whole concern of wanting to control and shift reality from what it is, right? That's pretty straightforward. Um, but I think it would perhaps be too easy to say, oh, well, people who are interested in, or I should say alternative spirituality, but also extreme politics on the left and right, uh, you know, that's, you know, people go to outsider communities. I don't want magic to be an outsider community. I do work very hard to make sure that it's not, uh, but traditionally it has been an outsider community. You should have seen it in the early fucking nineties when it was literally Renfair. Not good. Um, really creepy. I worked very hard to make it normal and nice and safe. It was not that before. Um, my point is that still in the in fringe communities, of which magic was and is increasingly not any longer, uh, but we still have a ways to go. Um, it seems like you get people with traumatic backgrounds. Okay. And they manifest it all kinds of weird ways. Um, positive and negative. You know, people can take their trauma and do very good things with it. They can become activists. They can become uh, humanitarians, you know, uh, or they can go totally fucking off the rails. So um, now I said, I'm not sure this is the, you know, it would be easy to say, well, people are learning spiritual techniques to fix themselves. Yes, absolutely. Right. That's a big reason why people come to this stuff um, or to get a sense of wholeness or to reestablish a sense of things being okay. That's really important to do particularly as an adult, if you have unresolved trauma, your primary goal, your primary task as an adult before moving on to becoming responsible for other people is to become, listen closely, your primary goal, if you have trauma in your background, your primary goal as an adult is to become the adult that you needed at that age. Now, I'm all shits and giggles, and I'll make all kinds of goofy jokes and say all kinds of, you know, silly stuff, but I'm very serious about this, uh, and I'm just straight out about this. If you are an adult with trauma in your background, which is a lot of people, right, a lot, a lot, um, your primary goal as an adult before moving on to becoming responsible for other people is to become the person you needed when you were that small, the person that you needed as a child person who is capable of protecting and healing and saying the right words and making you safe. Many of us, many of us did not have that person. Um, and, and people often manifest a pattern of running around frantically trying to find that person outside them and, and being very upset when they can't, right? The reason is that person doesn't exist, right? You have to become them. You have to become them. So become the person that you needed. Okay. Um, there's a very good book. I'm not going to get into it now for time's sake, but I may mention it in the next few sessions. I've linked it in the unit called Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman. Fascinating book, book completely about um, PTSD and not just PTSD, but the advances made by the feminist movement in uncovering PTSD uh, endemically throughout society. This is tediously a contentious subject these days it whatever we can just ignore that this book shows a lot of really interesting things it first of all shows where freud fa utterly failed in in 
his formulation of psychotherapy. It also makes it also demonstrates that it was only because of the feminist movement. The feminist movement in the '60s encouraged and allowed for the first time a space for women to come forward and talk about their experiences. That just didn't exist before that. It just didn't. Right. The idea that women's experiences mattered. Right. And it could and should be shared openly and including women's experiences of trauma. And it was only because of that space being made culturally that people began to get a sense of how endemic uh, sexual abuse was in society. Right. And but following on from that, it, that then the positive effects of that then rippled out to begin to uh, applied not just to outspoken women, but not only to all women, but then to children and and eventually men actually started opening up a little bit, a little bit, not much, but so it's really hard to get numbers on that because a lot of people just don't talk. Uh, but the, the point she makes in this book is that because of the advances of feminism, uh, which should not be rolled back, um, we've only begun to understand as a culture what's been going on. And we live on a traumatized planet. You know, we live on a traumatized planet of traumatized people, traumatizing people. So your job as spiritual practitioners is to end, if it is there, is to end the line of traumatization in your family. Let it at least end with you. That's magic. You don't have to be Mother Teresa. You don't have to be anyone special. You don't have to save the world. You don't have to save the whales. You don't even have to save anyone, actually. You don't even have to save yourself. But let it end with you. Stop the boulder of karma by not repeating the cycle because almost everybody on this planet is unconscious and unconscious people simply repeat patterns of stimuli, even if they're abusive, right? And it rolls on for thousands of years <laughs> and the boulder. Okay, bit of a tangent, um, but I bring this up because as we progress through spiritual practice, this stuff does begin to come up and it needs to be looked at from an adult perspective. That often requires assistance, by the way, it often requires a professional psychotherapist, right? You can't necessarily, or, or a psychological professional of some type. Uh, it's really helpful, can be, not always, but it can be helpful to just have someone to talk things through, right? Don't make the mistake, by the way, of thinking that spirituality fixes everything. It doesn't, okay? Me or anyone else who has been down this road for a long time can or should be able to tell you that, right? Um, spiritual practices do not heal your personality. They don't, right? What they do is they put you in touch with your spiritual divine nature. That's what they're supposed to do, but they don't heal your human personality. So you need to handle both of those things in tandem. I did a really, really good podcast on this, by the way, with Abdi Asadi, which is maybe a couple years ago I did. Uh, really, really highly recommend his work. It's back in the Ultra Culture with Jason Liu podcast archives. Uh, I think it's called Me and My Shadow with Abdi Asadi. Um, it's a really critical point to understand. Uh, spiritual practices do not heal the human personality. They only get you in touch with your divine self, which is not colored by your human personality. Right, it's a deeper aspect of yourself. You still need to do the work of healing your day-to-day -day living personality. And if at any time you start disassociating and deciding that you're above it all and you're divine and you're special and you're actually the incarnation of 
XYZ, you, my friend, are dissociating from your trauma and replacing it by turning your personality into a symbol of something else that is stronger than the trauma. That is a slip. It's a slip. It's called magositis. Don't do it, right? Be a normal, maintain and heal and advance your humanity, your normal personality. You hear stories of gurus who go off the deep end and declare they're the avatar of the age and all this stuff. There's a lot of stories like that, and then but they're still they treat everyone around them like shit. There you go. Case in point, that's somebody who associated totally with the spiritual level of reality as an escape from their broken human personality. That's someone who she should not be teaching, right? We're, we're only now beginning to get a sense of this. This is why I present myself as a total normal jackass. It's really important. And the other reason that directly relates to the true will and what we're about to talk about is that, you know, you may ask the very obvious question, if everyone has a true will, why don't people know it? Some people do, it seems very rarely, historical figures um, right out the gate. Um, the, the answer is it all gets fucked up and muddied about by incarnating here, right? It may seem clear uh, in advance, but the world's, this is a, this is a, you know, planet of the apes, right? It's like, this is a savage place. The earth is brutal. Um, it's improved a lot. It's improved a lot in the, even in the last few decades, it, despite all appearances, it's improved remarkably, but this is a savage place, you know, it's the physical world. And so, um, once you're in a body, you can get traumatized really easily in it. and not only that but you get confusing input you know it's a battle here this is war it's a it's a battle so it's easy to get all interbulated okay i am going to share something in just a second from a very very useful book which was very popular for a brief period of time in about 1990 and then or uh, was it 1996 98 uh, and then went was forgotten about uh, 1996. Okay. It is called The Soul's Code in Search of Character and Calling by James Hillman. I've also provided a link to this in today's notes. Very useful. Um, I found out about this book. Actually, this was very, uh, everyone was reading this when I first went to, when I was um, um, 20, 21, I, I went from college to, and then I moved from Santa Cruz to New York to work for Disinformation, which at that point was the coolest company on the planet and disintegrated a few years later. Um, but everyone was into this. Uh, Genesis was into this. Richard Metzger was into this. I think Howard Bloom was very into this. Everyone was talking about this book. Um, it was a big deal. And then it was promptly forgotten. So magical people, you know, cause this is, this is by a psychologist, but it is basically all about the true will. Um, so I'm going to, um, give you a little reading from it, uh, share some information from it. There's a link in the unit if you're so interested. All right. You'll get it right away. So in a nutshell, the acorn theory and the redemption of psychology, there is more in a human life than our theories of it allow. Sooner or later, something seems to call us onto a particular path. You may remember this something as, a, as a, a signal moment in childhood when an urge out of nowhere, a fascination, a particular turn of events struck like an enunciation. This is what I must do, and this is what I've got to have. This is who I am. This book is about that call. If not this vivid or sure, 
The call may have been more like gentle pushings in the stream in which you drifted unknowingly to a particular spot on the bank. Looking back, you sense that fate had a hand in it. This book is about that sense of fate. These kind of enunciations and recollections determine biography as strongly, I would say stronger, as memories of abusive horror. But these more enigmatic moments tend to be shelved. Our theories favor traumas, setting us the task of working them through. So you can see why I handle that first before telling you this. Despite early injury and all the slings and arrows of an outrageous fortune, we bear from the start the image of a definite individual character with some enduring traits. This book is about that power of character. Because the traumatic view of early years so controls psychological theory of personality and its development, the focus of our rememberings and the language of our personal storytelling have already been infiltrated by the toxins of these theories. As insidiously as, as nose bacteria. Our lives may be determined less by our, our childhood than by the way we have learned to imagine our childhoods. We are, this book shall maintain, less damaged by the traumas of childhood than by the traumatic way we remember childhood as a time of unnecessary and externally caused calamities that wrongly shaped us. So this book wants to repair some of that damage by showing what else was there, is there in your nature. It wants to resurrect the unaccountable twists that turned your boat around in the eddies and shallows of meaninglessness, bringing you back to feelings of destiny. For that is what is lost in so many lives and what must be recovered, a sense of personal calling, that there is a reason I am alive. Not the reason to live, not the meaning of life in general, or a philosophy of religious faith. This book does not pretend to provide such answers, but it does speak to the feelings that there is a reason my unique person is here, and that there are things I must attend to beyond the daily round, and then give the daily round its reason. Feelings that the world somehow wants me to be here, that I'm answerable to an innate image, which I'm filling out in my biography. That innate image is also the subject of this book, as it is the subject of every biography, and we will encounter many biogra biographies throughout these pages. The biography question haunts our Western subjectivity as its immersion in therapies of self show. Everyone in therapy or affected by therapeutic reflection, even as diluted by the tears of TV talk, is in search of an adequate biography. How do I put together into a, co into a coherent image the pieces of my life? How do I find the basic plot of my story? To uncover the innate image, we must set aside the psychological frames that are usually used and mostly used up. They do not reveal enough. They trim a life to fit the frame, developmental growth, step-by-step step from infancy through troubled youth to, to midlife crisis and aging to death. Plotting your way through an already planned map, you are on an itinerary that tells you where you have been before you get there, or like an average statistic foretold by an actuary in an insurance company. The course of your life has been described in the future perfect tense, or if not the predictable highway, then the offbeat journey, accumulating and shedding incidents without pattern, itemizing events for a resume organized only by chronology. This came after that. Such a life is a narrative without plot. It's focused on a more and more boring central figure, me wandering in the desert of dried out experiences. I believe we have been robbed of our true biography, that destiny written into the acorn, and we go to therapy to recover it. That innate image can't be found, however, until we have a psychological theory that grants primary psychological reality to the call of fate. 
Otherwise, your identity continues to be that of a sociological consumer determined by random statistics. And the unacknowledged daemons' urgings appear as eccentricities compacted with angry resentments and overwhelming longings. Interesting choice of words. For those who don't know, daemon, D-A-I-M-O-N, very different, totally different from daemon. Daemon, uh, Latin word, was uh, Socrates and Plato's word for the holy guardian angel guarding the true will, offering the true will or the genius, the genius factor. Repression, the key to personality structure in all therapy schools, is not of the past, but of the acorn and the past mistakes we have made in our relation with it. So the acorn, he means the, the, the you know, the acorn contains the entire code for a tree. So somewhere in that, at the very inception of a being, is the entire code for the tree. That's what he means. We dull our lives by the way we conceive them. We have stopped imagining them with any sort of romance, any fictional flair. So this book also picks up the romantic theme, daring to envision biography in terms of very large ideas, such as beauty, mystery, and myth. In keeping with the romantic challenge, this book also risks the inspiration of big words, such as vision and calling, privileging them over small reductions. We do not want to belittle what we do not understand. Even when, in a later chapter, we do look carefully at genetic explanations, we find mystery and myth there, too. At the outset, we need to make clear that today's main paradigm for understanding human life, the interplay of genetics and environment, omits something essential. The, particu the particularity you feel to be you. By accepting the idea that I am the effect of a subtle buffeting between hereditary and societal forces, I reduce myself to a result. The more my life is accounted for by what already occurred in my chromosomes, by what my parents did or didn't do, and by my early years now long past, the more my biography is the story of a victim. And I'm living a plot written by my genetic code, ancestral heredity, traumatic occasions, parental unconsciousness, societal accidents. This book wants to lift the pall of victim mentality from which individual people cannot recover until the theoretical paradigms that give rise to that mentality have been seen through and set aside. We are victims primarily of theories before they are put into practice. The current, Ameri the current American identity as victim, in 1996, it's gotten worse. The current American identity as victim is the tail side of the coin whose head brightly displays the opposite identity, the heroic, self-made man carving out destiny alone and with unflagging will victim is flip side of hero more deeply however we are victims of academic scientific and even therapeutic psychology whose paradigms do not sufficiently account for or engage with and therefore ignore the sense of calling that essential mystery at the heart of each human life why are you here talking to me, for God's sake? It's because nobody, nobody else will talk to you about this stuff. And it's the central, this is the most important thing of human life. It's all trauma and victimization, and, you know, et cetera. In a nutshell, then, this book is about calling, about fate, about character, about innate image. Together, they make up the acorn theory, which holds that each person bears a uniqueness that asks to be lived and that is already present before it can be lived. Before it can be lived raises doubts about another principal paradigm, time. And time that takes survey of all the world must have a stop. It too must be set aside. Otherwise, the before always determines the after, and you remain chained to past causes upon which you can have no effect. 
So this book devotes more of its time to the timeless, attempting to read a life backward as much as forward. Reading like backward enables you to see how early obsessions are the sketchy pre-formation of behaviors now. Sometimes the peaks of early years are never surpassed. Reading backward means that growth is less the key biographical term than form, and that development only makes sense when it reveals a facet of the original image. Of course, a human life advances from day to day and regresses, and we do see different faculties develop and watch them wither. Still, the innate image of your fate holds all in the co-presence of today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Your person is not a process or a development. You are that essential image that develops if it does. As Picasso said, I don't develop, I am. For this is the nature of an image, any image. It's all there at once. When you look at a face before you, at a scene, out your window, or a painting on the wall, you see a whole gestalt. All the parts present themselves simultaneously. One bit does not cause another bit or precede it in time. It doesn't matter whether the painter put the reddish blotches in last or first, the gray streaks as afterthoughts or as originating structure, or whether they are leftover lines from a prior image on that piece of canvas. What you see is exactly what you get all at once. And the face, too, its complexion and features form a single expression, a singular image given all at once. So, too, the image in the acorn. You are born with a character. It is given a gift, as the old stories say, from the guardians upon your birth. This book sets out on a new course based on an old idea. Each person enters the world called... The idea comes from Plato, his myth of error at the end of his most well-known work, The Republic. I love that book, by the way. Uh, I mean, duh, Plato. I mean, you'd be shocked how applicable that book is. I can put the idea in a nutshell. The soul of each of us is given a unique daemon before we are born. Mainstream clinical psychologist. Hmm. The soul of us is the soul of each of us is given a unique daemon before we are born, and it has selected an image or pattern that we live on Earth. The soul companion, the daemon, guides us here. <laughs> I've forgotten how. To... <laughs> okay, I'll just keep going. In the process of arrival, however, we forget all that took place and believe we come empty into this world. The daemon remembers what is in your image and belongs to your pattern, and therefore your daemon is the carrier of your destiny. As explained by the greatest of later Platonists, Plotinus, AD 205-270, we elected the body, the parents, the place, and the circumstances that suited the soul, and that, as the myth says, belonged to its necessity. This suggests that the circumstances, including my body and my parents whom I may curse, are my soul's own choice. And I do not understand this because I have forgotten. So that we do not forget, Plato tells the myth, and in the very last passage, says that by preserving the myth, we may better preserve ourselves and prosper. In other words, the myth has a redemptive psychological function, and a psychology derived from it can inspire a life founded on it. The myth leads also to practical moves. The most practical is to entertain the ideas implied by the myth in viewing your biography. Ideas of calling, of soul, of daemon, of fate, of necessity, all of which will be explored in the pages that follow. Then, the myth implies, we must attend very carefully to childhood to catch early glimpses of the daemon in action, to grasp its intentions and not block its way. The rest of the practical implications swiftly unfold 
A, recognize the call as a prime fact of human existence. B, align life with it. C, find the common sense to realize that accidents, including the heartache and the natural shocks the flesh is heir to, belong to the pattern of the image, are necessary to it, and help fulfill it. There you go. So this is the whole thing. Uh, a calling may be postponed, avoided, intermittently missed. It may also possess you completely. Whatever, eventually it will out. It makes its claim. The daemon does not go away. For centuries, we have searched for the right term for this call. The Romans named it your genius. The Greeks, your daemon. And the Christians, your guardian angel. The romantics, like Keats, said the call came from the heart. And Michelangelo's intuitive eye saw an image in the heart of the person he was sculpting. The Neoplatonists... Neoplatonist means hermeticist, means magicians. The Neoplatonist referred to an imaginal body, the okima that carried you like a vehicle, the astral body, body of light. It was your personal bearer or support. For some, it is Lady Luck or Fortuna. God damn it. See, there we go. For some, it is Lady Luck or Fortuna. For others, a genie or jinn, a bad seed or evil genius. In Egypt, it might have been the Ka or the Bob with whom you could converse. Among the people we refer to, uh, among the people we refer to as Eskimos, uh, now as Inuits, and others who follow shamanistic practices, it is your spirit, your free soul, your animal soul, your breath soul, your breath soul. Yes, over a century ago, the Victorian scholar of religions and cultures, E.B. Tyler, 1832 to 1917, reported that primitives, as non-industrial peoples were then called, conceived that which we name soul to be a thin, insubstantial human image, in its nature a sort of vapor, film, or shadow, mostly palpable and invisible, yet also manifesting physical power. A later ethnological reporter, Aki Holtzkrantz, whose special field is the Amerindians, said that soul originates in an image and is conceived in the form of an image. Plato, in his Myth of Air, uses a similar word, paradigma, a basic form encompassing your entire destiny. Though this accompanying image shadowing your life is the bearer of fate and fortune, it is not a moral instructor or to be confused with conscience. The Roman genius was not a moralist. That's true. It knew, every, it knew everything about the individual's future and controlled his fate. Yet this deity held no moral sanction over the individual. He, he was merely an agent of personal luck or fortune. One might ask without opprobrium to have evil or selfish desires fulfilled by his genius. In Rome, in West Africa, and Haiti, you could well ask your daemon, whatever it might be called, to harm enemies, spoil their luck, or aid in manipulations and seductions. This evil aspect of the daemon, not without consequences, I should add, this evil aspect of the daemon we also shall explore in a later chapter. Okay. The concept of this individualized soul image has a long, complicated history. Its appearance in cultures is diverse and widespread, and the names for it are legion. Only our contemporary psychology and psychiatry omit it from their textbooks. The study and therapy of the psyche in our society ignore this factor, which other cultures regard as the kernel of character and the repository of individual fate. The core subject of psychology, psyche, or soul doesn't get into the books supposedly dedicated to its study and care. I will be using many of the terms for this acorn, image, character, fate, genius, calling, daemon, soul, destiny, rather interchangeably preferring one or another depending on the context. 
This looser mode follows the style of other often older cultures, which have a better sense of this enigmatic force in human life than does our contemporary psychology, which tends to narrow understanding of complex phenomena to single meaning definitions. That drives me fucking nuts. We should not be afraid of these big nouns. They are not hollow. We have merely been deserted and need rehabilitation. These many words and names do not tell us what it is, but they do conform, confirm that it is. They also point to its mysteriousness. We cannot know what exactly we are, we are referring to because its nature remains shadowy, revealing itself mainly in hints, intuitions, whispers, and the sudden urges and oddities that disturb your life and that we continue to call symptoms. Consider this event. Amateur night at the Harlem Opera House. A skinny, awkward 16-year-old goes fearfully on stage. She is announced to the crowd. The next contestant is a young lady named Ella Fitzgerald. Miss Fitzgerald here is going to dance for us. Hold it. Hold it. Now, what's your problem, honey? Correction, folks. Miss Fitzgerald has changed her mind. She's not going to dance. She's going to sing. Ella Fitzgerald gave three encores and won first prize. However, she had meant to dance. Was it chance that suddenly changed her mind? Did a singing gene suddenly kick in? Or might that moment have been an enunciation calling Ella Fitzgerald to her particular fate? Despite psychology's reluctance to let individual fate into its field, psychology does admit that we each have our own makeup, that each of us is definitely, even defiantly, a unique individual. But when it comes to accounting for the spark of uniqueness and the call that keeps us to it, psychology too is stumped. Its analytical methods break down the puzzle of the individual into factors and traits of personality, into types, complexes, and temperaments, attempting to track the secret of individuality to substrata of brain matter and selfish genes. More strict schools of psychology kick the question right out of the lab, packing it off to parapsychology, that's us, for the study of paranormal callings or to research stations in the distant colonies of magic, religion, and madness. I like that. I may make that the subhead of magic.me, a distant colony of magic, religion, and madness. It sounds like the, the thing or something like that. I love that. I know. Jeez, fuck, it's so scary out here. At its most bold... <laughs> At its most bold and most barren, psychology accounts for the uniqueness of each by a hypothesis of random statistical chance. This book refuses to leave to the lab of psychology that sense of individuality at the core of me, nor will it accept that my strange and precious human life is the result of statistical chance. Please note, however, that these refusals do not therefore bury our heads in the folds of a church. The call to an individual destiny is not an issue between faithless science and unscientific faith. Individuality remains an issue for psychology, psychology that holds its mind in it holds in mind its prefix, psyche, and its premise, soul, so that its mind can espouse its faith without institutional religion and practice its careful observation of phenomena without institutionalized science. The acorn theory moves nimbly down the middle between these two old contesting dogmas barking at each other through the ages, and which Western thought fondly keeps as pets. I know he's disassociating himself from the distant colonies of magic, religion, and madness, but damn, I couldn't have put that better myself in terms of a general magical theory. The acorn theory proposes, and I will bring evidence for, the claim that you and I and every single person is born with a defining image. Individuality resides in a formal cause. 
To use old philosophical language going back to Aristotle, we each embody our own idea in the language of Plato and Plotinus. In this form, this idea, this image does not tolerate too much straying. The theory also attributes to this innate image an angelic or daemonic intention, daemonic meaning not demonic, but daemonic, the higher genius, as if it were a spark of consciousness, and moreover holds that it has our interest at heart because it shows us for its reasons. That the daemon has your interest at heart may be the part of the theory particularly hard to accept. That the heart has its reasons, yes. That there is an unconscious with its own intentions. That fate plays a hand in how things turn out. All this is acceptable, even conventional. But why is it so difficult to imagine that I am cared about? That something takes an interest in what I do. That I am perhaps protected. Maybe even kept alive, not altogether by my own will and doing. Why do I prefer insurance to the invisible guarantees of existence? For it sure is easy to die. A split second of inattention and the best laid plans of a strong ego spill out on the sidewalk. Something saves me every day from falling down the stairs, tripping at the curb, being blindsided. How is it possible to race down the highway, tape deck singing, thoughts far away, and stay alive? What is this immune system that watches over my days, my food sprinkled with viruses, toxins, bacteria, and maybe even my nose too? Even my eyebrows crawl with mites like little birds on a rhino's back. We name what preserves us instinct, self-preservation, sixth sense, subliminal awareness, each of which too is invisible yet present. Once upon a time, what took such good care of me was a guardian spirit and I damn well know how to pay it appropriate attention. Despite this invisible caring, we prefer to imagine ourselves thrown naked into the world, utterly vulnerable and fundamentally alone. It is easier to accept the story of heroic self-made development than the story that you may well be loved by this guiding providence, that you are needed for what you bring, and that you are sometimes fortuitously helped by it in situations of distress. May I state this as a bare and familiar fact without quoting a guru, witnessing for Christ, or claiming the miracle of recovery? Why not keep within psychology proper what once was called providence, being invisibly watched and watched over? Children present the best evidence for a psychology of providence. Here I mean more than providential miracles, those amazing tales of children falling from high ledges without harm, buried under earthquake debris, and surviving. Rather, I am referring to the humdrum miracles when the mark of character appears. All of a sudden, and out of nowhere, a child shows who she is, what he must do. These impulsions of destiny frequently are stifled by dysfunctional perceptions and unreceptive surroundings, so the calling appears in the myriad symptoms of difficult, self-destructive, accident-prone, hyper-children, all words invented by adults in defense of their misunderstanding. The acorn theory offers an entirely fresh way of regarding childhood disorders, less in terms of causes than of calls and less in terms of past influences than of intuitive revelations. In regard to children and their psychology, I want the scales of habit and the massed hatred within the habit to fall from our eyes. I want us to envision that what children go through has to do with finding a place in the world for their specific calling. They are trying to live two lives at once, the one they were born with and the one of the place and among the people they were born into. The entire image of a destiny is packed into a tiny acorn, the seed of a huge oak on small shoulders, and its call rings loud and persistent and is as demanding as any scolding voice 
from the surroundings. The call shows in the tantrums and obstinacies and the shyness and retreats that seem to set the child against our world, but that may be protections of the world that comes with and comes from. This book champions children. It provides a theoretical foundation for understanding their lives, a foundation that draws its own foundations from myths, from philosophy, from other cultures, and from imagination. It seeks to make sense of children's dysfunctions before taking these disorders by their literal, label, literal labels and sending the child off for therapy. Without a theory that backs the child from its very beginning, and without a mythology that connects each child to something before its beginning, a child enters the world as a bare product, accidental or planned, but without its own authenticity. Its disturbances can have no authenticity either. Since the child does not enter the world for its own reasons, with its own product, with its own project, and guided by its own genius. The acorn theory provides a psychology of childhood. It affirms the child's inherent uniqueness and destiny, which means, first of all, that the clinical data of dysfunction belong in some way to that uniqueness and destiny. Psychopathologies are as authentic as the child itself, not secondary contingent. Given with the child, even given to the child, the clinical data are part of its gift. This means that each child is a gifted child filled with data of all sorts, gifts peculiar to that child, which show themselves in peculiar ways, often maladaptive and causing pain. So this book is about children offering a way to regard them differently, to enter their imaginations and to discover in their pathologies what their daemon might be indicating and what their destiny might want. There you have it. The Western esoteric tradition restated for the modern world, 1996. I leave you with that. All right, hope you really enjoyed that. Check out Adapt Initiative at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. And P.S., if you haven't downloaded the free meditation yet, the new meditation, Definitely go grab that too and get on the mailing list where you will be first to find out about new courses, remasters, um, everything else that's coming down the pipeline. It is start.magic.me, start.magic.me, and that is totally free. All right, see you in class.